John chapter 14. This morning, we are going to read here together verses 18 through 24. If you would please stand with me for the reading of the word. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. A great text there on our spiritual union with the Lord. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. You may be seated. This is part of the Upper Room Discourse again. The Upper Room Discourse actually covers John chapter thirteen thirty-one through chapter 14, verse 31 where Jesus said, uh, let's go. (laughs) Now, that chapter 14 begins here with this uh, charge to his grieving disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. For that is good advice today. Let not your hearts be troubled. God's in control. He has everything fully under his uh, hand. So then Jesus says, believe and trust in me, or believe in God, believe also in me. I believe they're both uh, commands. Believe in God. Trust in God, literally. Trust in God. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust your own plans. Don't trust your, your fi- way to figure things out. But trust in the Lord. Trust in God. And trust in me also. And uh, then uh, here is, he gives this revelation that he's going away. He said, I'm going to leave you. And you can't, where I'm going, you, can't, you cannot follow me now. This revelation of his going away and the imminent danger which he faced, and they understood this because he had been telling them, I'm going up to Jerusalem to be crucified and then I'm going to be, uh, raised, be raised from the dead. But now, so now when he's mentioning this again, it's creating some anxiety in the hearts of the disciples. And so his response to them was, trust me. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. You may not understand the whole plan and and the whole purpose of what's taking place right now, but just trust me. And this command then raises the question, for what were they, and, and, and also for us, as we are readers of that scripture, 
For what are we to trust Him? Well, for what are we to trust Him? And this raise, this is, I think, this verse here that, that follows Jesus then answers this question by revealing the things that He was going to be doing. So, number one, and it's it's not uh, clearly stated here when he says I, I'm going to go to way to the Father's house to prepare a, a room for you. In my Father's house are many rooms, dwelling places. But I believe the the whole uh, emphasis of that uh, promise there was that he is the heavenly bridegroom, and his bride, the church, is going to be left. While he goes away to the father's house to prepare a place for her. And then when he goes to prepare a place for her. When he's finished. He's going to come back to receive her to himself. That where he is there will she be also. In other words. I'm leaving you for a while. But as the heavenly bridegroom. I'm coming coming back to take you. And I will be faithfully with you forever. Boy that's a great promise. To this he adds, and you know the way where I am going. And I say, I didn't believe he said that to provoke here uh, Thomas. And uh, Thomas then expresses some unbelief when Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going and how can we know the way? Why would he say this? Because, he re- because Jesus already had already made it clear. Did Thomas not know Jesus? See, and here's here's the point. It's not what Jesus does for us. It's who Jesus is to us. We do not know where you're going and how can we know the way? Thomas, do you not know me? Me! I'm not a way pointer. I am the way. I'm not the road mark. I'm the way. He and he only was the way to the Father. There, that's in verse number six. Then he rebukes Thomas when he says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. That's interesting. If you would have known me. Does Thomas not know him? If he. If he really understood him and knew him, he wouldn't have asked that question or made that statement. We do not know where you're going and how can we know the way? So the Lord here rebukes him and he said, if you had not known, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. But then notice this word of hope. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. See, Thomas was one of his own. It's like us. Sometimes we express our unbelief, but the Lord comes back and says, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to fix even that unbelief. So this statement then is is extremely important because Christianity is the glorious union with Christ and the Father and our union with Christ and the Father and it's not the typical religion that simply looks to God. See, all, uh, all religions want to appease God and placate God 
and and uh, do something to to win God's favor and approval by doing certain things and by not doing certain things, uh, then then okay, I'm gonna I'm in a position there where God is happy with me, so He's going to c- take care of me and He's going to give me the things that I need and want. That's not Christianity. Christianity is my union with Jesus and with the Father. Where I am entering into his life. It's so much more. And so in verse 20 he says, In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Wow. And it's this that we're going to look into today. So, number four there, if Jesus had known me, Jesus stated here, excuse me, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And here again, the goal of salvation is not simply to allow sinners to go to heaven. When they die. Seems like that's. Christianity is more interested in. Getting people to. to uh, Accept Jesus. So they can go to heaven when they die. Well Christianity is a whole lot more than that. Salvation is God's working. In us. To create a new people. Who will populate. The new heavens and the new earth. The kingdom of heaven over which Jesus is King and Lord, even now. Kingdom citizens are a people who know Him, and in know Him, live like Him. That's why Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by the love which ye have one for another. Jesus said, I'm going away. And what the reason I'm going away is because this is absolutely necessary for me to do in the process now of creating a new thing. God's creating a new thing. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And I need a people who are going to populate that new heavens and a new earth. And you are whom we have chosen. Peter writes, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. Now listen to that, because this is interesting. You see a lot of that in the scriptures, about God's destroying things. Oh, but, but, but we don't want God going around destroying everything. We, we want everything peaceful. We want everything happy. We want everything prosperous. We want everything uh, glorious. But Peter writes here in Second Peter chapter 3, since all these things are thus to be dis- dissolved, and he's just spoken of the day of the Lord in the ver- previous verse. We, then we read, So what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? God's in the process of destroying. So in the process, in that process of destroying, how are, are we to live? Like people who are holy and godly. Waiting for and hastening the coming day of God 
because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the earth and the heavenly bodies melt away as they are burned as they burn but according to his promise and here's the here's the point we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells Am I only interested in restoring the United States to its constitutional principles? That would be nice. Certainly would be nice. But I want to tell you something. The men who founded our nation and established those principles were also looking for a new heavens and a new earth. And even they admitted that the principles upon which this nation were founded were for a godly people. And if and if the people refused to walk in God's ways, they couldn't maintain that constitution. And this United States of America, as nice as it is and as glorious as, as, as it has been, the greatest nation ever upon the face of the earth is nothing to be compared to the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwells righteousness. So Peter's arguing that the people of God here need, need to live lives of holiness and godliness as they prepare for the day of God and for the new heavens and the new earth. Paul emphasized the same truth when he call, said here that saints are a new creation. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 17 and 18 read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And actually, it's coming. The new is coming. It's not all fully here yet. And all this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And again, in Galatians chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, it's not rituals, but a new creation. And then he says, and for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. That was the problem. The old, the old covenant people kept the rituals. They kept the feast. They kept the rituals. But they didn't walk by that rule. You're a new creation created in Christ Jesus unto new things. Walk by that rule. And then in, in, as a result peace and mercy will be upon you and upon the Israel of God. New creation people obviously cannot live as they did in the old creation which is subject to the destruction of fire. Then, this passage before us, we see the glorious fulfillment of Isaiah's closing prophecy. In Isaiah 65, 17, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered nor come to mind. Wow. 
Jesus makes a glorious promise. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. So the, my question is, are, are, is he just giving some comforting words here to them? Or is there more to it than that? And I believe there is. In Isaiah 65, verse 18, it says, Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to come to you. And when I come to you, there will be a new Jerusalem and there will be joy and there will be gladness. Oh, am I looking for that day. So let's... Uh, get into it here so i asked the question is just this a word of consolation verse 18 is often preached as if jesus were just continuing to comfort his disciples i'm not going to leave you orphans don't be troubled i'm not going to leave you orphans the king james has it here i will not leave you comfortless and this translation does have a note uh, signifying the comfortless here is uh, the translation of the word orphans. I will not leave you orphans. And it is doubtless true that the disciples did feel abandoned, but this statement to simply console them? I, I don't think so. Jesus is far more concerned about their their well-being as far as believers are concerned than merely how they feel in this present hour here. So his departure then involved his death and subsequent resurrection, which, which then intended to bring new life, an eschatological life facilitated by the Holy Spirit. And, and here's, I believe, is the import is he's going to be introducing the new helper that's going to come to them during this age, during this gospel age, in this intermediate period when we're waiting for Jesus to come back and establish that new heavens and new earth. So what do we do in the process? See, I want to dig into this further. This Greek word here translated orphans or phanos, from which we get our English word from that Greek word, orphanos. It's uh, found only two times in, in the New Testament. Only twice. It's found here and in James chapter 1 and verse 27. In James 1.27, James there is clearly referring to the Old Testament requirement to, pr to protect the or orphans and widows. In Exodus chapter 22, verse 21 you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. And then in Deuteronomy 24, verse 17, we read, you shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or to take a widow's garment as a pledge. However, and here's the important understanding here, he's not talking about orphans in that literal sense i believe jesus here in this time point is telling them i'm not going to leave you defenseless or unprotected and he is talking to them in a figurative sense but i'll, I'll clarify that even more here was jesus addressing the fear 
that his leaving would make his followers that they would be left orphans in a, in the usual sense. And I think even the Greek, the, the secular use of the Greek orphanos is, uh, would uh, tell us no. It's understood, it was often understood of disciples who had been left without a master. And I think that's how Jesus is using it here. I'm your master, you're my disciples, but I'm going to leave you here pretty soon. But I'm really not leaving you. I'm not leaving you in that sense. And that's followed by the promise, I will come to you. But this coming to them would not be in the usual sense of his physical presence. Because he said, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. How is it that we can see Jesus and the world not see Jesus? His going away was not to abandon them, but to enable the purpose for which he was saving them, to live his life. And so he says, because I live, you will live also. I'm going away and I'm going to die, but I'm going to live again. And because I live, you will live also. So Christ's words then, in, these, in this passage here, verses 18 to 24, introduce a transition from the old covenant to the new age of the Spirit, the new covenant. And this is seen in the words in verse 20. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and I in you. In that day, you're going to know your union with me. So, how would that be? In this, in this new age of the Spirit, the disciples would know something that they did not previously know. The Greek word here that's, that's translated knowledge is that of what is real and true. We live in an age of deception. You can't trust anything you hear on the news. You can't trust any, I, you can't trust what you're taught in school. You can't trust anything. We live in an age of deception. Are we billions and billions of years old? This earth? I mean, there are, there's all kinds of, of vaults information out there that we have just accepted as true and we go right on living our lives. But we live in an age of deception because Satan is a liar and a deceiver. And so we're warned over and over and over again in Scripture, be not deceived. How can I keep from being deceived? He has given me the Holy Spirit of God and He's given me the Word of God. And if it doesn't comply with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, I don't trust it. Don't trust it. And that's what this Greek word knowledge connotes. It connotes what is real and what is true. It is truth grasped by understanding and perception. It is experienced truth 
truth to be lived out as light and darkness. It is the will of God lived out in a selfless service to the glory of God and in faith revealed that reveals the invisible God to a rebellious world. My job is to live the truth in the darkness. My job is to live reality in the midst of falsehood. My job is to live Christ in a Christless world. So, again, how can we know? How can we do this? How can we know? Before we address that, note that Jesus earlier prepared for this when he said in John chapter eight, verses thirty-one and thirty-two, "If anyone's will." is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. No, that's John 17, 7, 17. Then again in John 8, 31 and 32, he said also, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will know. There's that word know again, see? So in this text, Jesus is clearly telling us that to know the truth, those who know the truth are those who will also obey the truth and obey Him who is the truth. In verse 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Hmm. So who deserts who? Jesus, they're afraid Jesus is deserting them, huh? Well, who deserts who? I read Jim Ellis' uh, post there. He's part of the Christian Communicators Worldwide his posts on Facebook there, and he made an interesting observation in light of the relief, this revealed document about the uh, Supreme Court's decision on Roe v. Wade. And he and he commented, he, he had a, a cute picture there, a great big chair with this little bitty child sitting in the chair. But, uh, he, but he commented here with these words, this is the generation to stop the murder of babies, but also to turn from neglecting God an insidious form of rebellion. I hope that's the case. I hope this is the generation that will stop murder, the murder of babies. But the last part of that is what caught my attention. To turn from neglecting God which is an insidious form of rebellion. That, this is what characterizes Christians of our age. They ne they're neglectors of God. Neglecting God. And that's a, that is the grievous sin. And the Lord stated concerning His people there in Isaiah 66 verse 3. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. He's talking about Israel. These are the people who have chosen their own ways 
and they their soul delights in their abominations. So then he makes it clear there in in chapter uh, the prophet does uh, or the Lord does through the prophet Isaiah there in Isaiah sixty six one and two, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? The temple, the ritual system, and all of that. And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came uh, came to be, declares the Lord. This is the one with whom I look. Not you're, uh, you're interested in a temple. You're interested in buildings. You're interested in ritual. You're interested in, in all of these things. But this is what I'm interested in. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Are we humble, contrite, fearing his word? Yes, the disciples' hearts were troubled when Jesus informed them that he was going away and their fear was that he was deserting them and that uh, they they had come to depend upon him and now they feared his absence. But thus he promised, I will come to you. This promise caused has caused many commentators to ask, which coming? I love commentators. Study the word, you would figure it out. I mean, it's very, not very difficult. So they, they ask, is this the promise of his second coming at the end of the age? Or is this uh, the, the, the uh, post-resurrection ministry there of 40 days that he said, that he mentions? I don't, neither one is right. And the reason is because the Holy, uh, the passage clearly shows what Jesus meant concerning his, that is coming to them would be in the person of the Holy Spirit. At that time, the world could see the physical presence of Christ, but then Jesus said the world would then would not see him. But the disciples could see him, not physically, but spiritually, by the Spirit who would indwell them. So this new age of the Spirit was made possible because Jesus departed this earth to return to the Father's right hand. Jesus said, the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. That's verses 30 and 31. So now in his obedience... The sacrifice of Christ and his resurrection made it possible for the Spirit to permanently indwell the believers. And when the Spirit came, he enabled the real saving work of Christ in the believers, the work of sanctification, making them holy. Jesus' absence made it possible for the Spirit of God to do the work that Jesus' physical presence with them would have not made possible. The practical implication of this indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit is more important than the physical presence of Christ and the clear evidence of the indwelling presence of Christ is the circle of love that he will create 
with his own. And I want to, I want, I just want you to go back there to the 13th chapter for a moment. When he began this upper room discourse in verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you and you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so say I also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. But now notice, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, and you are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that, I, that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. See, that's the church. That's what a church is, is supposed to be supposed to be a gathering of the people of God who are indwelt by the Spirit of God who love one another just as Jesus has loved us. Now, we're not going to do it perfectly like Jesus, obviously, because we're sinners. But we're just going to care for one another. And I'm telling you, folks, I believe the days are coming when it's going to be more and more, more, and more important that we love each other and that is that we look out for each other, that we care for each other. The circle of love. That's a church. God's people loving Jesus Christ in such a way that they care for each other because they love Christ too. So Jesus stated this purpose, I believe, in no uncertain terms. The truth was introduced in the statement of, uh, in that previous text that preceded our text. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This, if you love me, you will keep my commandments is not a command. He did not, he's not commanding them. The King James Version kind of reads that way. If you love me, keep my commandments. You love me? Keep my commandments. No, no. This is a statement of fact. If you love me, you will do it. So if you're not keeping his commandments, you don't love Jesus either. That's just that simple. Last In last week's message there, we stated that the present tense of the Greek verb in the, the indicative or declarative mode and the, inter, and the imperative mode uh, look the same. So the King James has translated this as an imperative I do not believe that it is an imperative. I believe that it's in the indicative mode. It's a declarative statement. It's, he's simply declaring to them this truth. If you love me, you will be keeping my commandments. And the only the context determines what the speaker intended. So if you look carefully, verse 16 makes it clear that verses 15 and, uh, through 17 form one sentence. If it's it's marked, divided up in our Bibles. But I believe in the Greek it was one sentence. And here's what it says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, helper to be with you forever. With the implication here that, uh, that would it, he would enable their obedience. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. So this truth is then is affirmed in, 
in verse number 24. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him also, see. So the whole upper room discourse is a response to four comments by the disciples. It's very interesting. Number one, Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? And why cannot I follow you now? Jesus' response was, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter had to go through that for him to be able to follow him. Sometimes God brings difficult things into our lives. And we have to go through those things obediently in order for us to follow him. And that's exactly what... And when, Jesus, when, when Peter denied the Lord, Jesus came back to find him. Hey, do you love me? He didn't leave him alone. He didn't say, ah, he denied me. Let him go. No, you're one of mine, Peter. I'm going to bring you back. I, I told you to be a fisher of men. Now quit fishing and go take care of my sheep. Obey me. Then Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus responded, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, listen to that, you would have known my Father also. And from this point on, you will know him. You will know him and have seen him. Here's another one. Showed unbelief. The Lord said, the reason I'm going away is to, pro to provide for you the means whereby you won't have to ask that question ever again. Because you will see him and you will know him. Philip stated, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus responded to him, have I been so long time with you and you just still do not know me? Philip, who am I? I am the image of the Father. I am the express image of my Father. And you still don't know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Do you not trust that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Peter, or Philip, you need to get to know me and you're not going to really know me until the Holy Spirit of God comes and indwells your heart and then you will know. And lastly, Judas, not Iscariot, Raise the question, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus responded, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him and, and we will manifest, excuse me, yeah, yeah and we, and uh, uh, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him.
this final question is very important to our understanding of whether one is really saved or just has a profession of faith that cannot save him. A true believer is one who loves the Lord, giving proof of that love by keeping his word. The word keeping means to attend diligently and carefully and guard that word. In other words, this this book here has to be the most precious thing in your life right now. How is it that we have all these people who claim to be Christians and never open the book? They're never interested in reading it. They never take time to pursue it. If you if you love me, you will keep my word. And this the root is to watch carefully the believer's ability to keep Christ's word, as which is a declaration of a prophet. See the word logos, the truth of God revealed, as in the person of Christ who is the logos of God, according to John chapter one verses one to three. Only. One indwelt by the Spirit of God is able to love Christ and keep His Word. That's a simple fact. So let me just conclude. Jesus warned, and that word that you hear is not mine, but the excuse me, but the Father's who sent me. Verse twenty-four. This is the warning to the Jews. And to all others who believed that their relationship to God was secure while they rejected Jesus and sought to destroy him. They had not chosen, had, uh, they had chosen their own ways and the Lord responds to them. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered and when I spoke, they did not listen but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that which I did not delight. In that which I did not delight. Isaiah 66 and verse 4. So Jesus also warned those who do not love him and do not keep his word. Do you claim to be saved? Do you keep his word? And again I ask with Jim Eliff, is this the generation that will turn from neglecting God? Let me close with these words from Isaiah 66. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified in that we, uh, that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. They were mocking. In other words, these people were mocking the, the true remnant. They hate you. And they cast you out for my namesake. And, and so they, they mock you. But they're going to be the ones put to shame. For behold the Lord will come in fire. And his chariots like a whirlwind. To render his anger and fury. And his rebuke in the flames of fire. For the fire will. For by fire the Lord will enter into judgment. And by his sword all flesh. And those slain by the Lord will, shall be many. For I know their works and their thoughts. And the time is coming 
to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory, and I shall set a sign among them. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. That's in the new heavens and the new earth. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. That is the wicked. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word. Oh, what a glorious text this is and what a glorious promise Jesus has given to us. And Lord, right now we're, we're, we, we, we wait. Long years have elapsed since Jesus spoke those words. We keep our eyes on the eastern sky and we keep hoping. And we watch the news and we watch the world crumbling around us. But we keep our eyes on the eastern skies. And we trust you, Lord. We walk with you. We want to walk with you. We want to be faithful to you. Even in these dark hours. And we, because we know that you've gone to prepare a place for, you, for us and you will return to receive us to yourself that where you are, there we will be with you forever. We thank you and praise you for, for this great truth and we ask your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen.